almost to the end of the book of Revelation. We're going to cover chapter 18 today, and then we'll have in t- next week the return of Christ in Revelation 19 as we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. I thought that would go together, and then we'll look at the heavenly state. Before you know it, we'll have completed the book of Revelation. Uh, but today, I want to remind you that Revelation chapters 17 and 18 focus on the fall of Babylon. Revelation 17 that we looked at two weeks ago focuses on the fall of the religious system of the world that's been opposing God. And then today, Revelation 18 focuses on the economic and, in part, the political system of the world that is against God. And this Babylon is set in contrast to at least two things. First, it's set in contrast to the New Jerusalem, but it's also set in contrast to the the church, which is in the world now. Uh, Babylon was an ancient city in history that did fall, uh, but Babylon became a byword, an idiom, to speak of uh, the kingdoms of this world that are against God. And so again, in Revelation 18, our, our passage today, we're going to be looking at mostly the economic in part, the political fall of Babylon, and the title of the sermon is No Comeback. There's no coming back from this. And we are in Revelation 18, we'll cover the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 24. So let's begin with uh, Revelation 8, 1, and what happens in the first passage, the first, uh, excuse me, eight verses of our passage today is sort of the announcement of the fall of Babylon. Verse 1 reads, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And so this angel that's coming down from heaven is also in contrast to the beast, if you remember, that came up from the earth. And this powerful angel is coming from the very presence of God to execute God's will on the earth. And verse 2 reads, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So this angel, this great angel, is declaring the fall and the destruction of Babylon. But it's also a reference, it's pointing back to a prophecy that Isaiah gave back in Isaiah 21. Isaiah 21 is a prophecy like Isaiah 51, talking about the fall of Babylon. And Isaiah 21, 9 reads, And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen, So, uh, messengers. Then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. So, this destruction of Babylon and the false gods of the system of Babylon are going to be brought down. And this was prophesied and alluded to even back in Isaiah's day. You know, this reminds me that God is in control. That's a comforting thing. This God who is ruling, he has always ruled, and he will always rule over his creation. And what he has decreed is what is going to come to pass. So while the world seems to be prevailing at some times, while evil seems to be winning at some times, we must know that what God has decreed is what will come to pass. He will fulfill his word. He always does. But also Babylon... Uh, here is referred to as a dwelling 
place. If you look at this verse that we just read in Revelation 8, 2, it's referred to as a dwelling place, a prison, a cage for demons, and all sorts of evil. So this is referring to Babylon and God's judgment on Babylon as, as a sort of confinement. God is confining them in his judgment. What that means is there's no one that will escape. Nobody's going to slip through the cracks. Moving on, verse 3 reads, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So what's happening is this economic system of Babylon is being judged. The world has taken its riches, its wealth, its power, and thrown itself in with Babylon. And now as Babylon is defeated, so the world, the economic system of the world that is tied up in Babylon will collapse as well. Verse 4 reads, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. So that God's people are found within Babylon suggests that maybe there's at least like a, a capital city or some sort of boundaries to this collection of kings and nations and empires that have joined themselves against God. The people of God aren't participating in the sin of Babylon, but they are found within perhaps this capital city. This reminds me of Noah, remember? Noah was a righteous man that pleased God. He walked with God even though he lived in the midst of a wicked world. It reminds me of Lot. Lot and his family lived in the midst of the wicked twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But just like Noah, God called Lot out of that city before his wrath came upon them. Lastly, it reminds me of Jesus and his high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, right before Jesus is going to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified, he prayed. He prayed. The first part of John 17, verses 1 through 5, he prayed for himself. The next part in John 17, verses 6 through 19, he prayed for his disciples that were there then. But then in John 17, verses 20 to 26, Jesus prayed for all who would believe in him. That includes us today. And as a part of that prayer, often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, when he was praying for his disciples, in John 17, verses 14 to 17, I, I, look at what Jesus prayed here. He says, I have given them your word. He's praying to the heavenly Father. And he says, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Jesus is praying to the Father, talking about his disciples. Just as I am not of the world. Now listen to this. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. We've seen that all through Revelation. It's not that we're removed from the trials and the tribulations and the suffering, but that we're kept through it. They are not of this world, verse 16 says, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Again, we've seen this all through Revelation, not that we're going to be removed from trials, not that we're going to be removed from suffering, but that God keeps his people through it. He is with us through it, and one day we will be vindicated. God will repay those who have suffered, uh, who have persecuted his people. His people have suffered, and God will reward those who belong to him. 
And that's what we find in the next few verses. Look at Revelation 18, 5. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So to say that God has remembered her iniquities doesn't mean that God ever forgot. In fact, when the Bible, we see this real clearly in the Old Testament, when it says that God remembers something, what it means is he's about to act. It means something is about to take place. You see this real clearly in Genesis 8, verse 1. It says that God remembered Noah. And then immediately what follows at that part is the waters begin to recede and the earth begins to dry up. Now, it didn't mean that God had forgotten Noah. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that guy with all those animals on that boat. I better do something there. It's not what that's saying. When it says that God remembered, it means that, okay, God is about to act in this moment. Let's read the next part of our passage, verses 6 through 8, about how God has remembered the evil Babylon. Look at what that means. Verse 6, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in what? In one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. What's interesting is that in all of her strength and all of her pride and all of her boasting and in the strength of this world, it doesn't matter when God decides to stand up, when God remembers it, when it's time for God to act, it's all going to come to an end. God will judge the system of this world in righteousness. Look again at verse 8. It says the judgment of Babylon will come upon her in what? In one day. In other words, when God's judgment comes, it will be comprehensive. Nothing will be able to stop it. In fact, we sang about that earlier in the service, didn't we? We sang, who can stop what? The Lord Almighty. Think about this for a minute. The power that all of the world can muster. Doesn't matter how many nukes the world has, it doesn't matter the riches, the number of people counted in the armies of the world. Doesn't matter that they've aligned themselves with Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. I mean, all of the strength that the world can muster and all of the forces of hell God's going to take care of them in one day. All of the might of Satan in the world cannot stand against our God. And our God will have his day. Verse 8 closes with exactly that. Look at the end of the verse 8 one more time. It says, for what? For strong is the Lord who judges her. That leads us to our first point today. This world may appear forever, but in the day of the Lord, everything that is not of God will come to what? An end. The warning of this is that we must not, we must not trust in the things of this world for our security. We must not trust in the things of this world for our purpose, our joy, our peace, or our fulfillment. We must not because the things of the world are fading away. 
But you know what? The sad thing is many of this world and many who call themselves believers are doing just that, trusting in the things of the world. When we look to social media to, to boost us, when we look to our clothing or food to satisfy us, we think that more toys will give us peace and contentment. What we're doing is we're trusting in a system that is slipping through our fingers, fading away, and heading for the judgment of God. If you're trusting in this world and you are unsatisfied, you have found the problem you're trusting in the world. The good news, the great news, is that we can invest all that we are, we can invest our lives in something that not only lasts forever but fulfills us now. We can trust in a God that will satisfy us for eternity but also satisfies us now. We can now know peace now and even forever. I'm reminded of Stephen, the, the first Christian martyr, that as he's standing there and he's giving his great sermon to the people and the people's hearts are hard and they're not listening. He looks and he sees Jesus standing waiting to receive him. And Stephen did not say, oops, I've messed up. I should have invested in the world more. Stephen saw his Lord. He saw his reward and he was content and he was satisfied even as he was stoned to death. That's how Jesus fulfills and satisfies the human heart. But when we go to the things of this world, you're going to come up empty over and over again. You may have heard how the English colonists um, originally caught monkeys that were causing them problems, getting into their, their supplies and breaking stuff. They would take a banana and put it in a glass jar, and the monkeys could see and they could smell the banana. So the monkeys would come up and they'd reach for the banana, but then they couldn't pull the banana out. And so instead of letting go of the banana, they would just keep pulling. And then they would, they would get louder and louder as they got frustrated and they couldn't pull the banana out of the jar. And that gave the colonists time to come and to trap them. And that is a sad picture of so many people in this world, so many believers even, that have put their faith in Christ, that are saying they're following Christ, but yet, they're holding on to the things of the world, wondering why they don't have the joy of the Lord. We hold on to the things of this world. We've trapped ourselves. We've plotted our own demise. But as you continue on with Revelation 18, it further explains this demise of Babylon. The first eight verses uh, announce it, and then verses 9 through 20 describe it more. So let's read Verses 9 through 20 of Revelation 18. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city. For in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and bodies and souls of men. 
The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, who became rich by her, will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at the distance and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea came, became rich by her wealth. For one hour she's made desolate. Look at verse 20. Rejoice. This changes. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Now, this is our second week to look at the fall of Babylon, so I don't feel like we need to go by verse by verse and look at all the details of this section. But I want to point out a few things that we see repeated here. Three times in this passage, it points out that Babylon is overthrown in what? In one hour. So this is a figure of speech speaking to the suddenness of Babylon's fall. It's very similar to the concept of the one day that we saw in the first eight Verses. It doesn't matter how strong Babylon appears, when God's judgment comes, it will be sudden and it will be complete. Second, did you notice the world weeps for Babylon? Often, alas, alas, that great city and the world is weeping for Babylon. But don't be confused, the world is not weeping because they care about Babylon. The world is weeping Because all of their wealth is tied up in Babylon, and that is coming to an end. All of those things that are being described are economic. It is the economy of this world that has been wrapped up in Babylon that is now crashing down. And that's why they're weeping. They're watching their money simply go away. All that the world trusted in is being destroyed. Their wealth is coming to nothing. Their riches have failed them. They weep because the God of wealth that they had been serving is being destroyed by the one true living God. But then third, at the end, people are told to rejoice in light of all this. That's kind of odd. But look again at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So heaven and the apostles are told to rejoice in the midst of all this calamity. But why is that? Is God being mean? Not at all. This is a reference, especially the apostles, it's to those who were martyred for their faith, their obedience to Jesus. Even those that remember early in Revelation, it said if you didn't receive the mark of the beast, you couldn't buy or trade goods. It was this economic system that was oppressive to the people of God that now God is judging that same economic system. It is God's justice that is on display and God is avenging his people and that's why they're told to rejoice because now God's righteousness is coming forth. God's judgment has come, and it's come in full. The world that has opposed God for thousands of years is now coming to an end. 
you know the word avenged, it's kind of an interesting word. Uh, but again, we've seen this before. It's not some random emotional outburst by God. It speaks of God doing what is right. Again, this economic system said you have to have a mark of the beast to trade and do things in this economy. And God says, okay, well, just wait. I'm going to have the last say about that. And so as God brings it to an end, he tells his people that have been oppressed by that same system that now is the time to rejoice. God has avenged his saints. It was good and right for him to do so. That brings us to our second point today, which is this. God cares about the injustice you suffer even more than you do. And his justice will be perfect when he acts. As much as you care about the injustice around you, God cares about it more. His nature, his very character demands that there be justice. There are many verses of scripture that point to that. We read one already in our scripture reading today. I want to remind uh, remind you of it. I think it's a good summary of this concept. Psalm chapter 37, verses 7 through 9. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. You see, God's very nature, listen, take confidence in this, take comfort in this. God's very nature demands justice. Now, we may not understand God's timeline, and I think that's where we struggle the most, but we can trust his nature. We can trust him. We can trust that he cares for us, that no suffering is wasted, that he will see justice done. So what that means is that I can let go, I can quit fretting, I can quit worrying, I can give it over to God, knowing that his very nature demands justice, that I may not understand the timeline, but I know that God will see to it. He will do what is right. Let's finish the rest of our passage for today. Revelation chapter 18, verses 21 to 24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. Do you hear the repetition here? And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth... For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who were slain on the earth. That repetition is pointing to the finality of Babylon's fall. Now we love a comeback story, don't we? How many movies are are done about comebacks? How many books have been written that follow the plot line of a comeback story. We love it. We love to see someone who falls or fails to be redeemed to come back. You know, the whole Star Wars franchise was built, if you think about it, on a comeback story. Episode 4 
was released in 1977. The full title of the movie, I'm not saying it's Christian, I'm just saying it's built on a comeback story. The full title of episode four is this, Star Wars, episode four, A New Hope. A new hope. In the Star Wars world, hope had been lost. It seemed like the evil empire had won. The rebellion was crushed. But then, Luke Skywalker entered the story. Under the tutelage of Obi-Wan Kenobi, Luke set out on a path to become a powerful Jedi and to restore hope to the galaxy. The rebellion that seemed at the brink of disaster was reborn. And a new hope filled those who were in despair. It is a comeback story of epic proportion. But while we love a great comeback story, there will be no hope of return for Babylon. And that is our hope today, that when God decrees her end, her destruction will be swift, it will be complete, and it will be permanent. We're not going to have to worry about that mess in heaven. And aren't you grateful for that? Notice in Revelation 18, 21 to 23, that each verse has the phrase, and shall not be found or heard anymore. If this world leaves you lacking, that's okay. Because heaven is your home. So allow the longings that you have in this world to remind you that your longing is for the city that is to come. And next week we'll see Revelation 19, the return of Jesus. We'll see the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll see a glimpse of our home that is coming. We'll see the fall of Babylon from the heavenly perspective. But as we bring the sermon to a close today, I want to remind you of the two truths we discussed from this passage. First, this world appears to last forever, but in the day of the Lord, everything that is not of God will come to an end. Second, God cares about the injustice you suffer more than you do. And when he acts, his justice will be perfect. Obviously, Revelation is about what? The end times. But it's also about how we should live now in light of what is to come. Did you pick up that Revelation, as we've gone, is actually a warning to us now? It is a warning to the people of God to not put our hope in the things of this world. Have you picked up on that? The things of God are forever. The world is passing away. How are you living for eternity now? How does your life demonstrate, truly demonstrate, that eternal perspective? For others of you, to live for eternity first is to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ now. You will not be ready for heaven. You will not be ready for the return of Jesus. Heaven will not be your home if you don't know Jesus, but more importantly, if you're not known by him. And that's where we close today is this. This book of Revelation that we've been studying, this end time that we're studying, the goal is this, that all of creation is moving to the end that God has purposed for it. And the end of the believer in Jesus Christ 
is the presence of God forever. And what God wants for you is to begin to experience a taste of heaven now. He wants you to know him, to have his presence dwelling in you now. And that comes as we turn from our way, as we believe upon Jesus, as we cast ourselves upon him, as we let go of the banana in the jar, and we look to Jesus and say, I believe you are the son of God given for my sins. Save me, Lord Jesus. And as we call out to him by faith, He not only forgives us of our sins, saves us, but he gives us his spirit. And God's presence now is that taste of heaven. It is a down payment of what is to come. That now we have a glimpse of what it's all headed towards. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, that's where you need to begin today. is to experience God. Not just religion or a church, but to experience God. To turn from your way to believe upon Jesus and to know the Holy Spirit of God invading your life and to know a taste of heaven now. And then for many of us, as we've already put our faith in Christ and as we're walking with the Lord, for us to evaluate our lives, to be honest enough with ourselves to say, am I investing in the things that will make it to eternity? Or somehow along the way have I begun to Just build up that earthly stockpile that's all going to turn to dust and ash one day. I have found in my life that the things of eternity, the things of eternity, I'm investing myself in them even when it comes at a sacrifice, will satisfy your heart more than all of the riches of this world combined. Would you please stand with me? And as we prepare to sing a song of response, a closing song. This is our opportunity to respond not to a pastor or to a church, but to respond to the living God whose word has been proclaimed to you today. To respond to God as he's dealing with you through his word and by his spirit. What is God saying to you? Our responses should obviously be more than just this moment. It should be as we go out and we live our lives. But what is God calling you now, maybe to commit as a family to, as an individual to? How is God calling you to live for eternity now? And for others of you, what is God calling you to do to let go of that you might fully trust in Christ to know him to be saved? I'm going to be down front. I'm going to pray. And as we sing, you respond as God leads. I would love to kneel and pray with you right here as you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us, that you are for us, not against us. But we must understand the urgency of the day. You are going to return. And when you do, there's not going to be a time to change our minds or get things right. That time is now. If we have breath in our lungs now, the time is now to give ourselves to you. And to be ready for your return. Lord Jesus, thank you that all of your promises are true. And you will fulfill every word you've spoken. And that is our hope. So as we sing unto you, Lord, our hope is in you. We trust you to fulfill your word. And to somehow bring glory to your name. Through us, these weak vessels. It's in Jesus' name we pray.